Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, this episode of Other People is sponsored by Other Voices Queretaro. I think that's how you pronounce it, Queretaro, Q-U-E. R-E-T-A-R-O. It's a city in Mexico, and Other Voices Queretaro is a vibrant, multifaceted writing program set, you guessed it, in Queretaro, Mexico. It focuses on both fiction and creative nonfiction, as well as the ins and outs of contemporary publishing. The program was co-launched by Gina Frangello and Stacey Beerline, long-standing business partners editing Other Voices magazine and Other Voices books, which is now an imprint of Dezank Books. So if you're looking for a great writing retreat, a great summer writing program, look no further. Other Voices Ketataro is happening this summer, July 5th through July 14th, 2013. It will offer three morning workshops to choose from, led by authors Pam Houston, Rob Roberge, and Joseph Novakovich. And there will be an evening wine and publishing section for the entire group. There will also be two group excursions. For more details, please visit com. It's a writing program in Mexico. Go and participate in it. Dios mío. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is what you're listening to. This is pointless without you. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. And uh, sort of a miserable day. I'm recording this on Monday April 15th, uh, 2013, which is the day of this terrible bombing in Boston at the Boston Marathon. So it's not even sort of a miserable day. It is miserable to contemplate this. And uh, I spent much of the day today working and trying to avoid the internet and uh, failing repeatedly to avoid the internet. Uh, I kept going back. I kept looking at the various news sites. I kept seeing uh, way too many graphic images uh, that upset me. I kept looking at my Twitter feed, and that upset me for a variety of reasons, big and small. 
So there's really nothing to add. I mean, what, you know, what can I say? Uh, what can I possibly say about this? That's going to bring any kind of insight or clarity is how I feel. And yet here I am trying to say something, (laughs) uh, because it's hard to talk about anything else at the moment. When something like this happens, it sort of dominates your headspace for a good while. And yet I don't know what to say, uh, which is how I tend to feel increasingly, both as a human being and as a writer. I used to feel a lot more of an urge, I think, uh, in like my 20s, maybe my early 30s. I used to feel a lot more of an urge to speak up and to write stuff and to have an opinion express my feelings, have something good to say about things. And by good, I just mean uh, hopefully intelligent or meaningful. And nowadays when stuff happens, I tend to want to be quiet (laughs) or just like lie down. I tend to feel like I shouldn't say anything unless I really, really have something to say. Uh, and so I guess the irony is that I'm talking publicly about not wanting to say anything. (laughs) Uh, it makes no sense. I mean, I'm doing this show. What am I talking about? Uh, you know, maybe it's important to join the chorus. Maybe it is important to do that. Like to join the chorus of people who are trying to say good things. People who are trying to express grief and uh, disbelief openly and honestly people trying to say uh, good and decent things in the face of bad and senseless calamity. Now, maybe that repetition is okay. And maybe somehow collectively the energy of that chorus makes a positive difference. Let's hope so, right? You know, I think about uh, the families from Newtown, Connecticut, who were there in the grandstand, right there at the finish line when, uh, you know, where the bomb went off or one of the bombs went off. And, you know, how cruel is that? Pisses me off. And I think about the fact that an eight-year-old kid is among the victims. And I think about, I think about whoever is responsible for this. And where they are right now and what must be going through their head or their heads. What dark people. And, you know, I also, I also think about families overseas in, in foreign countries and places like, uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan, Yemen. And I think about drone attacks perpetrated by our own country bombs dropped that killed dozens of innocent people, including kids. And, you know, I say this on Monday the 15th. And so it's important to note that we don't know who did this or where they're from or what their supposed motive was. But in light of past events and uh, the state of the world, this is where my head goes. I'm just being honest. To me, it's all connected. It's all insanity. 
this violence, the new, new town, wherever it happens, the drones, the bombs, the guns, just human beings, uh, being insane and uh, perpetuating the cycle of violence. And, you know, much of the time, I think I pride myself on being a realist. I've heard myself say that, I think. Trying to be a pragmatist, someone who tries to think things through, look at both sides, be considerate. Try to not be uh, strident or dogmatic in my thinking. You know, like basic stuff. But... When it comes to guns and war and bombs and uh, violence, lately I'm, I'm starting to think it's just better to be an idealist. Like, I want no guns. <laughs> How's that? I want no bombs for anyone, anywhere. That's my thing. That's where, that's where I'll stand on the issue and let everybody else uh, quibble over the details. Like, why do you want a gun? Why do you want a machine that is designed to kill other living things? Put it away. Let's just bury it or throw it in the ocean. Or actually, uh, don't throw it in the ocean. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's just melt it or uh, smelt it. Is that what you do? You smelt it? You know what I'm saying. It's just like, where is our wisdom? You know, where is our wisdom? So, uh, I'm just going to try to find my own, I guess. I think that's where it starts. Take care of my own house, take care of my own, uh, spirit and my own head and my own anger and insanity and despair and confusion and to just try to be uh, awake in my uh, life and to be awake to uh, what other people are going through and uh, to be an example of what the solution looks like or some semblance thereof. <laughs> it's so hard to talk about, but that's where my head is at right now. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
So uh, on to happier things. My guest today is Rob Roberge. His new novel, The Cost of Living, is now available from Other Voices Books, which is an imprint of DeZank Books. Uh, I should also add that Rob will be reading tomorrow night, Thursday, April 18th. Not tomorrow night when I'm recording this, but tomorrow night, the day after this episode goes live. So Thursday, April 18th, 2013, here in Los Angeles, uh, Rob is going to be reading and performing at the Nervous Breakdown Literary Experience. It's happening down at Molly Malone's at 575 South Fairfax Avenue. Emily Rapp, Lenore Zion... Jillian Lauren and Rich Ferguson will also be reading. And then afterwards, Rob and his band, The Urinals, will be performing. So if you're in Los Angeles and you're looking for something fun to do, please come join us at Molly Malone's. Uh, I should also add that The Cost of Living, Rob's new novel, is the April selection of the TNB Book Club, The Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For those of you who don't know, thenervousbreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community, and we have a monthly book club, uh, which is an amazing deal, truly. Uh, for only $9.99 a month, which is less than the cost of a movie ticket, it's less than the cost uh, of a book. You get a brand new title delivered to your door every 30 days, and the books are hand-picked by myself and Jonathan Evison. Uh, and better yet, all of the book club authors are interviewed here on this program, so you can read and then listen, or listen and then read. Or, if you're extremely gifted, you can do both at the same time. So if you want to sign up, please visit thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. Okay? So uh, having said all of that, let's get on with the program. This here is my conversation with Rob Roberge. And his new novel, once again, is called The Cost of Living. Out in desert hot springs, California, dirt fucked California, which we're thankfully moving out of very soon. Um, and along with that, I'm in a room filled with crap because we're moving very soon. So I'm surrounded by uh, boxes of books. If anyone wants any books, actually, they can go to my website. Oh, I need really? to get rid of books. <laughs> I got rid of thousands of pounds. <laughs> yeah, man, I got rid of a bunch of books back in, uh, you know, the right, right at the first of the year, and I got a hernia. I had so many books, and I was lifting them that I actually got a hernia. <laughs> so, Ooh. yeah, be careful. Really? Yeah, I didn't. Well, you know, I was stupid though. I didn't have a dolly, and I was just like lifting these insanely heavy boxes and contorting myself in ways that you know weren't healthy. Well, I, I would be that stupid. I would never have a dolly or anything smart like that. Yeah, no, I was totally unprepared. So, anyhow, I wish you luck. I know, I mean, books can accumulate, you know, and they're heavy. They have done that, and they are. Yeah. So, and you say you're moving out of Desert Hot Springs? Oh, yes. Where to? Uh, back to Long Beach, where I lived for about 13 or 14 years. Oh, cool. really like. Okay, so you like Long Beach, but living out in the desert, not so much? Um, no, uh, not, not really at all. I have a like a getaway cabin out in Wonder Valley that absolutely love. I mean, you go out there for like three days of writing and it's like you were there for two weeks. Um, but it's, it seems to me a, a getaway destination, not somewhere to live and slowly rot to death. <laughs> well, and it's like, it's gotta be brutal in the summer, right? It's just hot as hell. And just, I don't know. There's no escape, you know, there's no cloud, there's no cloud cover. There's no trees barely. You're just like out there burning up. 
Yeah, I'm I'm an odd person that way. I, I probably just like the winter even more than the summer. Um, I'll, I'll take the heat over the cold, but oh, you know really? you can't. But you can't surf here. There's a lot of negatives. So I'm, I'm looking forward to being back back to the shore. Okay, okay. Uh, and you're a surfer. Um, I was till I moved out here for a number of years. Till when I moved to California, till about four years ago, I did it all the time. Oh, okay. Well, uh, congrats on the new book, and thanks for being oh. a, par- a part of the uh, TNB Book Club. Well, thanks on both counts. Thanks very much. So uh, let's talk a little bit. I want to hear about uh, your life, just because you know you you read about uh, you know I've, I've been reading interviews here and there, and I've picked up some things that you've had uh, quite an existence. You know, there's it seems like there might be a lot to talk about. So uh, where are you from? Um, originally. Uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, and uh, when my folks could afford to move to a place with a good school, they moved to a town named Monroe, which is sort of equidistant between uh, Bridgeport and Danbury. Okay, so you which I I probably doesn't give much of a frame of reference for anyone. Well, no, um, I'm, I'm surprised. I didn't realize you were from the East Coast. Oh yeah, yeah. Didn't uh, here until the '90s. And so what was childhood like? I mean, I was reading an interview with you on uh, Three Guys, One Book, and you said that you were doing drugs uh, and drinking when you were eight years old. So that's early. <laughs> well, not every day when I was eight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there was still Little League. and Well, actually, Little League on cough syrup was a lot more fun. But, um, but yeah, well, my parents used to throw parties and stuff. That was probably the first time. Well, the first time I got high... Um, my father eventually was a narcotics officer, so you can imagine how proud he must have been to have an addicted son through high school. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but the good thing was we would get every year's physician's desk reference, so that that was like porn to a young drug abuser, you know, like giant glossy colored pictures of pills and things. Um, but uh, he was a pharmacist at a, a mental institution, Fairfield Hills Mental Hospital, um, which my mother later worked at as a nurse and, and I was once a patient at, so we had a, a nice bonding there as well. Um, <laughs> so wait a minute, wait a minute. Your dad was a, a, eventually was a narcotics officer, but he was also a, uh, what did you say? Was he a shrink? A pharmacist. Oh, a pharmacist. Okay. So he was a pharmacist at a mental hospital. Yeah. Jesus. Which was, which was actually, uh, you know probably quite traumatic, but a great place for a, someone who was going to end up a writer. Um, cause it was a series of these WPA buildings that, uh, you know, you would see at least when I was a kid, like fallout shelter signs and all these brick buildings, excuse me. I've got a bit of a something a little to the Ebola. Um, but, uh, so there were these tunnels, these WPA buildings were built with tunnels that you could drive supplies into if, you know, the Cold War broke out and whatnot, and people had to live underground. And uh, the patients who weren't dangerous to themselves or others, they could get down to the the tunnels, which were these dimly lit tunnels. And most of them were on Thorazine or some similar drugs. There were these guys just shuffling around, mumbling, drooling in these ill-lit tunnels. And I used to go down there when I was a kid, which is probably not very good for me. Um, (laughs) But I uh, I took a pill off the floor. It was like really pretty. I was maybe five or six years old, and uh, and then that was the, the 
the first, well, it was accidental, but the first accidental overdose of my life. I don't know what it was, but it was amazing. I think it was a tranquilizer. Um, and I remember at five or six thinking for the first time that I was happy and then I was in the hospital and they were pumping out my stomach and flushing me with charcoal and things and I couldn't figure out why Jeez. everyone was so upset. <laughs> so, so from that young, I mean, when, when you have uh, a predisposition to addiction, it, 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 it was there that early. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's sort of amazing. Seems, it seems like, I guess it's always there and then it just usually realizes itself maybe later in adolescence or whatever, but five years old. Well, I think it's a, it's a, maybe a harder the course argument, horse argument, but it, it was more of a, um, I had, you know, a very unsettled mind that that was the first thing that ever made it feel better. Um, and I think it registered that there was, uh, some sort of relief out there and I started seeking it, if that makes sense. So it was more like, it's a chicken or the egg, but it was my head before there was an addiction issue, um. And then there was a thing that helped it for a while that then no longer helps it because you're addicted to it, you know, so. Well, yeah, like that's the thing. Like, I mean, is there, I, I've heard things, different things said through the years, and I know they always say that addiction is hereditary, but is, do you have any kind of uh, conclusive sense of what it is? It's a genetic thing or is it an environment, some combination? Like, do you look at your family history and see like, where it came from? Or do you think that it was more circumstantial or just some sort you're some sort of anomaly in the in the line? Well, <laughs> I'm sure I'm an anomaly of something. Um, but, well, I mean, anecdotally and just, you know, from reading a lot about it and trying to figure it out um, and having, having it having been with me and me with it for most of my adult life, um, there seems to be both a nature and nurture component because you'll have siblings, you'll even have twins, which is the best way for nature and nurture studies. Um, you know, identical DNA from at least very similar sort of nurturing backgrounds um, who will have different addiction histories. So it's probably both, you know, but there's a lot of mental illness in my family, a lot of addictions. So, so it's you a, know, that, were either of your parents, were, were, you said your parents were throwing a lot of parties. Were they heavy boozers and stuff? And was it like that house in the neighborhood where all the, all the parents would go? <laughs> um they they really uh my father doesn't drink much at all uh um they weren't no they weren't really heavy drinkers uh the neighborhood was and i later found out it was like <laughs> horrifying things you sort of don't want to know um yeah i had the same i, was, I had a similar thing like by you know my, when i was growing up in milwaukee uh, our next door neighbors used to throw a great like st patrick's day party every year and of course i was like elementary school age but then there was like, you know, July 4th parade, and I, I was just experiencing this stuff as a kid, and I thought it was all fun and games, and then later it would be like, you know, years later I would find out that like Mr. So-and-so like wound up face down in the backyard, or, you know, like, uh, there, was a lot, there was a lot of subtext that I wasn't catching, you know? Oh, yeah, like 15 years later I found out we were a tea party neighborhood. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I was, uh, uh, I had a relationship that had gone horribly awry, and, uh, um, and I, uh, she was really rich, she's the only rich person I ever dated, and I remember at one point, after we had split up, we were still trying to be friends, um, she's also my only ex that I'm not friends with, um, I think that's anecdotal as far as an economic study goes, but, um, we were on the phone, and, and I, She's like, how are you? And I'm like, I'm broke. 
And she gave me this exasperated sigh. like, isn't there a cash machine near you, Rob? Like, yeah, the rest of the world, when they say they're broke, it doesn't mean they they can't make it to the cash machine. <laughs> it means there's no money in the cash machine that happens to be theirs. Um, but I had just gotten back. Uh, I had sold a vintage guitar to uh, go be with her in Europe, and she told me our first week there that we were breaking up, and I said, she couldn't have told me this over the phone, and she said, I thought that was rude. <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, wow, you really do have a lot of money, don't you? Dude, um, so I got stuck. Go I'm ahead. sorry. No, go ahead, please. So I got stuck at home for six months, uh, not long after I graduated from college, and I ended up uh, as a house and restaurant and business painter, um, and I was working on a like a pizzeria uno pizza chain back east, um, doing a paint job on that. And I saw this guy really looked like hell in, in installing one of the, the toilets. And I recognized him as the, the sponsor of my fifth grade basketball team from John's Plumbing Supply. Um, and I said, Mr. Spada? Oh, I'm using his real name. He's probably long dead. Um, he's like, yeah, who wants to know? And, uh, and it was one of those conversations where once you start, you can't get out of like putting your foot in your mouth. Well, that actually happens to me like every other day. <laughs> but um, I'm like, so how are you doing? He's like, oh, the doctors, you know, say this and that. And oh, my kid's in jail. I'm like, uh, you know, how's Mrs. Spotty? Oh, that whore. Which one was that? Was that the first wife you knew? I'm like, oh, Jesus, I don't know. And he goes down the list. And, you know, you ever seen like uh, the guys who do uh, sheetrock and drywall? They walk on those stilts. Yeah. Like, so they can, they can do, like, 10 feet up in the air and stuff. Sure. And, it, and I'm in the bathroom with Mr. Spot, and I'm joking, say, you know, say, well, at least you got your health. And he's like, oh, doctors say the wall of my heart's as thin as wax paper. I'll be lucky to be alive tomorrow. I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and uh, he's like, so uh, your parents still live on Pastor's Walk. And then this guy's walking by, and he's, like, drywall stilts. He says, Pastor's Walk. And uh, Spider says, yeah, he's like, my first wife and I used to go to these great key parties on Pastor's Walk. He's like, do you know the forest? Oh, wow, yeah, she was the hot mom in the neighborhood. She was a key party mom? So, wow. Wow. And you know, you know what it makes, me, it makes me think of is it makes me think of uh, the ice storm, which I think was set in New Canaan. So Connecticut, Connecticut was a hotbed of key parties, I think, right? Yeah. Actually, Rick and I talked about uh, that, that storm was the biggest storm of my life, like it, gets used in that uh, novel. That was actually a real ice storm uh, in 1973, I believe. Um, and you experienced where, it. Yeah, yeah, roads were shut down, you know, trees had fallen. It was, you know, all the men in the neighborhood tried to, like, sort of go back to their primal form. Like, the men, would, six of them would gather and try to go walk to the convenience store two miles away, you know, because um, no one had water or food. It was fun for us. We were out of school. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, remember, we, I remember loving that kind of stuff when I was a kid. Like whenever the snows would come, you know, like it's great. Yeah, we were out of school, and there was a liquor cabinet, so I was styling. So now, wait. Did you? Uh, you said you talked to Rick Moody about the actual ice storm in Connecticut. No, no. We just talked about where we were from. Um, I don't know if we've ever talked about the storm itself. Um, no, we were talking about music and just clubs we went to and stuff, and ended up asking each other where, where in the um, in the state. 
curious. I have a funny memory of that movie. Uh, I went to, I'll never forget it. I went to see it with like my friend and his family and it was like the holidays and like for some, like I was staying with them. So like, it was like, let's go to dinner and a movie. And so it was like his parents and uh, <laughs> me and him, we go to see the ice storm and I liked the movie so much that, uh, I was in a real, like, I get really excited when I see a movie that I like. Uh, and so I was like extremely happy and excited about it as I was leaving the theater. But, uh, like everyone else that I was with was like extremely depressed because it's a really depressing movie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I was like, I remember being like extremely elated about, about that film for some reason. <laughs> so, uh, anyhow, so you, you were, uh, you know, you said you were working, a you know, an odd job or whatever. Um, and I, I remember prepping for the interview, reading that you had a long list of odd jobs that you've worked, including, uh, at a candy factory that was particularly hellish. Yeah, that was really bad in Buffalo, New York. Oh, Jesus. Um, yeah, it was, uh, um, yeah, lived there for three, three years in the nineties, four years when my wife got her PhD. Um, that's yeah, why, that's why that, you moved to Buffalo is for the PhD. That's why she moved there. Yeah. And um, you moved there for her, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, got me points for years. I was going to say that, I moved, that's true love. <laughs> yeah. I moved to Buffalo for you. <laughs> it's a, it's a fight ender. <laughs> <laughs> Um and, um, and so, okay, so you're working at a candy factory in Buffalo while she's getting her PhD. Yeah, yeah, imagine my pride. Um, I just, I think I either finished or was finishing my MFA, and, uh, um, yeah, the candy factory was terrible. It was, it was the first job I ever had. It was like a scene from a bad movie. There was a guy who ran the line, um, who called me college boy. <laughs> he was like straight out of central casting. He's like, Hey, college boy. And he made me, he made me wear a beard bib, which is, you know, the hair things. It's about the most humiliating thing you can make a man wear at a candy factory. I think. What kind of candy, um, what kind of candy are we talking about? I see. And that's another thing. I was on saltwater taffy and I really, there was something somehow like, even though it was just as bad a job, if you were on like, wax lips or, you know, something like that, there would be a whimsy to it, you know? Um, you could say I made wax lips, you know, but no, I'm, I made saltwater taffy, which uh, if anyone knew the recipe or the process, they would never ingest it again in their lives. What's in it? What's um, in it? Um, well, about 30 different kinds of sugar-type product, like fructose, glucose, sugar, molasses, um, and it gets cooked up to 246 degrees in this bubbling vat. It, um, like every piece of clothing I owned after that job, not just every piece I wore to the job, but anything that touched them, like in a hamper, I had to throw away. I, I just smelled like a, a giant cotton candy ball. It was uh. awful. <laughs> and, and sweat. Sweat and cotton candy. Uh. But um, And then you mix it in this vat. But the thing about saltwater taffy is that it goes through these things that in my childhood were quite beautiful machines. They're actually still beautiful machines. The, uh, taffy pulling machines yeah. where it sort of, you know, uh, keeps folding back on itself to be stretched and, and pulled. Um, and it's got two rotary arms that do this with, with two arms each. So it's four arms that keep pulling the taffy in this giant sort of 12 foot uh, tube that it stretches in. Um, but the machinery has to be lubricated and the candy has to be 
touching the machinery, unlike, you know, like a lot of other products that come out of the machinery but don't go into the gears and things. So the lubricant had to be edible. <laughs> so the entire place, floor, gears, everything, was just lathered with this stuff called cake coat, which is with K's, K-A-T-E, K-O-K-E, K-O-T-E, cake coat. Um, and you would just, like, throw that on the... the um, the pull gears, you would throw it all over the place, and it was this um, sort of edible, vaguely petroleum uh, viscous fluid that was on everything there. This sounds awful. a terrible job. Yeah, I was going to say this. <laughs> <laughs> and I like taffy, and like I was going to say too, like saltwater taffy is always. It sounds vaguely healthy, saltwater, like of the sea, yeah. some kind of natural situation. But no, it's a disgusting like hybrid of chemicals. Well, the great thing was too, like the the cook there, this like six foot five guy, who would regale me on break with stories of candy disasters. Like I think it would be a good book because I didn't know there were that many. And like, seriously, like every smoke or lunch break, the guy would be like, "Oh, that's like the Boston molasses disaster of 1912." <laughs> and I I ended up looking some of this shit up, like once there was an internet, because I couldn't be bothered to go to the library and. 1992 to check these things. Um, there was like a, a a series of these disasters that this guy was right about, including this 1912 Boston molasses disaster that happened in Cambridge, where near the Neko factory is now. Um, my first journalism job actually was we set to print next to the Neko factory, but um, I guess they overcooked the molasses and it like bubbled out of the vats and started going down in the street in this very slow. <laughs> sort of like the blob with Steve McQueen, you know, this like <laughs> not exactly a tsunami, but this slow gel gelatinous, you know, bubbling thing going down the street. But it it trapped twelve people in basement apartments and basically made them into like molasses Pompeii. You know, they just found them there, like you know, burned and coated in hard candy the next day. Jeez, I think I remember reading about this somewhere. <laughs> Tragic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you it, it is tragic, but you know, you get killed by candy. It's like no one's people are gonna laugh about it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I just makes me think. There are a lot of stupid ways to die in this life. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, actually, that's a good. T a lot of stupid ways to die and other stories. <laughs> right. That's my test for titles: is you tag and other stories, and if it rings, <laughs> you've got a title. A lot of stupid ways to die. I would pick that up. Yeah. So uh, okay. So. Bad jobs, college boy. So you did go to college, and then what about uh, like what about your uh, substance abuse? Like high school, obviously you were uh, drinking. Like, where did it go from there? Did you go into college and you know talk a little bit about that part of your life? Uh, well, high school actually, I was still an athlete, so it was kind of a mix. Um, I was using, but not not as much um, until I blew out my knee my junior year, I think. Um, good athlete. And then I was, I was a good basketball player. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I was, yeah, I was good at track and cross country and basketball. Um, uh, basketball was really my sport. I played that since I was like six or seven and did all star camps and stuff. So yeah, I actually was, I was waiting to grow cause I was stuck at like five, seven or five, eight. And, uh, hoping for some growth spurt that could get me into Division Two or Division One, but uh, never came. <laughs> and then I blew out my knee. So, um, 
And I'd already started to play guitar a little bit, and then I was in a hip to ankle cast for like six months. And that's when I really started to read books and play guitar and kind of discovered another side of life. It, you know, it's so inter- um, it's so interesting to hear you say that because it's such a it seems like such a common uh, occurrence in the lives of artistic people is that they were uh, you know is it befelled befed befallen um, by some sort of injury or illness in childhood and that was really well yeah I mean I think of I mean I'm, just off the top of my head I think of Martin Scorsese and he, he like he was a really sickly child and so I re- right. remember reading about him he said he would just sit at home and watch TV and back in those days. They would play like the movie of the week or whatever, but then they would like replay it. So not only did he watch all of these different movies uh, because he was basically trapped indoors, but he rewatched them, which gave him, right. you know, different perspective. But yeah, I think that I mean it's not it's obviously not always the case, but it's often the case that there was some sort of uh, physical malady or injury or illness that drove a person inward. I don't know. It, it seems like a a somewhat common theme. No, it makes some sense. You know, it really because it's not. I mean, I don't think it's really a time in most people's lives for, you know, slowing down or introspection. You know, it sort of forced that in me. Um, but, so yeah, and then I ended, I was going to go to college to play basketball and I ended up going to an art school. So, um, it was a big shift. Where did you go to art school? Uh, Emerson in Boston. Okay. Which was a, a great experience for me. Uh, even though I just paid it off, you know. Last Thursday. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so when you say art school, Emerson, was this music? You were you were studying music, or what were you? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, they didn't have a music program, like, uh, but I'd been in a pit band in high school musicals, and you had to declare a major when you went into Emerson. So I declared music theater, which was absurd, since I really couldn't stand musicals, but I'd been able to play music in the pit band, and I thought they would let me play guitar in a pit band, and then they didn't have pit bands, and you had to sing and dance and things, and uh, <laughs> I, I lasted like one semester. I had a class called uh, Acting and Movement 1, and the final was this, uh, it may still be the, the three most horrifying, non-violent moments of my life. Uh, the final was a thing called the dance of myself that you had to do, um, which was an improvisational dance of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and really, I, I don't think I've, uh, other, I've never not been depressed and wanted to die that much. Um, it was just horrifying, you know, and, uh, Somewhere, like in the bowels of Emerson College, is a video cassette with uh, three minutes of the dance of myself, my, <laughs> my C plus dance of myself expression. I did very poorly too. It was apparently ironic and condescending. Is this, to this. I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not an actor. I, I have no, I've, I've a very limited understanding of what goes into that. But do you really need to do all this stuff in order to learn how to like express yourself as an actor? Do you need to create a personal dance? Uh, you know. <laughs> But, you know, I, I later, you know, did theater, uh, writing and directing it, and love working with actors. I should have asked that question, actually, because I worked with a number of really good actors, and it seemed to me they they would have been equally horrified by that experience. Yeah, yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, I've had, like, I'm actually really fascinated by great acting. I think a lot of us are. You know, anybody who loves a movie, you know, you're sort of taken in by it, and it's interesting to me the people who can do that and can kind of fool you. Um, but I, you know, there's like the method 
which is like, you know, where you, you go full experiential research or whatever and kind of become the part. But then there, there are actors out there who are really good who are like, no, you just pretend to cry. You know, <laughs> you don't have to, dr- yeah. you don't have to dredge up your past. You're an actor, you know, like that's your, cr- you know, I sort of lean towards that direction. I, don't, I mean, I guess whatever works, works, but it seems a little melodramatic to me to have to like, you know, put yourself through some sort of personal hell in order to convey personal. Yeah, I think there's, you know, at least, you know, I don't know as much about acting as writing. I think there's a little romanticism to that. You know, like, I mean, there were like certainly aspects of things I've written that are very wrenching and difficult, but there are also ones that I only realized after the fact that, you know, I thought I was telling a funny story and it's a wrenching and difficult story, but it wasn't particularly wrenching or difficult to render, you know? Um, You know, often, you know, we're, we reveal a lot about ourselves when we don't know what we're revealing. So, you know, if you're consciously like ripping your guts out to show your guts to someone, in some ways to me, that's too literal a translation to, to fall into the alchemy that, that occurs when art really happens. Yeah. Well said. I agree. And, uh, you, oh, know, right. Thank you. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking of right now too, is like when talking about like precious, uh, artists and melodramas that I was out at a coffee shop working the other day, uh, here in Los Angeles. And there was a, like, I shit you not. There was a, a hipster there, uh, with a typewriter. And oh, I love that. <laughs> steampunk novel in a, in, a, in a, in a public coffee shop, like just like rapping away on a typewriter. I was like, you, and he was, dre- and he was dressed the part too. I mean, it was like, to me, it was sort of horrifying, but I was like, okay, this is it. I've seen this. I can check this off my list, you know? Um, Although, like, you know, I, my save, uh, I shit you not, and other stories. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so, okay, so art school, pit band, music theater major, and then you decided you had to change. Did you switch majors? Um, I actually, I've told this story before, so, you know, the four people who followed my career, I apologize for the redundancy <laughs> in advance. Um, but there was a, this beautiful woman, um, named Beth, who I, I, well, actually I've, I've even put this in the memoir sections that have been published. So maybe eight people are aware of this story then. Um, but there was this beautiful woman, Beth, who left musical theater and went to tech theater. And I just had a mad crush on her. And I just thought, you know, if I stayed in her orbit, like in her proximity, she would recognize that I was a sensitive young man and worthy of her attention and time. Um, so I, I basically followed her through like four or five majors, <laughs> um, which yeah, I thought was romantic, but now I think would fall under most states stalking laws. Um, but, uh, and eventually she ended up in poetry and I had seen a, a reading with the guy who was teaching poetry. This guy, Bill Knott. I saw him and Richard Yates it was my first reading ever. Oh, wow. I didn't know till. Yeah, and I didn't know till college that people wrote books. I thought all the books had been written, and we just read them. They were all like, dead white people, and they were done. Like, I really had no idea that there were living people creating new books. I know it sounds really stupid, but I didn't even know that TV was written. It just sort of appeared, and I watched it. I had no sort of frame of reference for things being created. Um, you know, I wasn't from a house that had a lot of... They had no contemporary literature to speak of and things like that. Um, but uh, so I, I was catering this reading. I didn't know what a reading was. And it was Richard Yates and Bill Knott. And it was just amazing. And 
Yates went on to become my, my favorite living writer for a number of years. Um, He's amazing. Well, yeah, although he, he couldn't be my favorite living writer for 21 years now. Yeah, well, um, what was he like? Was, I mean, was he in decent shape? I mean, I know he kind of he lived a, a hard life. <laughs> He's a heavy drinker. Actually, he was struggling. Um, you know, it was his later years in Boston, but uh, I used to drink at this bar, the Crossroads in Boston, that he lived above. Um, and my girlfriend at the time was a bartender there. And uh, I screwed up. And it was one of the best screw-ups of my life. Um, <laughs> one of the best screw-ups of my life. Um, and other stories. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was late with my paperwork because Richard Gates was teaching one semester at Emerson. And I had just I had taken one writing class prior to that. Um, and I was late with my paperwork as I always was. And I didn't get into the class. And I got into this class with a uh, handled painter who I'd never heard of, who was an absolutely wonderful teacher. Um, my first really great teacher. Um, and my roommate, Steve got into Yates's class. And Steve, he was very funny, but he would, and, uh, reading, uh, Blake Bailey's biography of Yates, uh, tragic honesty, which is a beautiful book. Yeats comes across as a very generous and kind and, and attentive teacher. Um, he wasn't to Steve. I don't think he liked Steve. <laughs> um, and Steve would hand in. And the thing is, Yeats lived on the second floor above the crossroads, and students would give Sarah their manuscripts, and she would put them in the dumbwaiter and you know, send them up to the second floor so Yeats didn't have to come down to get manuscripts. Which I always loved that, like giving your stories to your professor via a dumbwaiter in a bar. <laughs> was she sending? Um, was she like sending drinks up to him on the dumbwaiter too? <laughs> no, he had his drinks up there. Although he was down every night uh, for dinner, like a prime rib and like bourbon every night. And, um, she got sick of me for like a month and a half. Oh, just the, the Steve, Steve handed in some story that was supposed to be funny that was set in World War Two. Um, and Yates was like, you know, I served in World War II. <laughs> he's like, um, yeah. And he's like, you think this is funny? My friend Kurt Vonnegut is funny. <laughs> like, oh, my God. <laughs> and I realized if Yates had done that, if Richard Yates had said even, if he had praised the story of my 95% and said one bad thing, which, of course, you're going to, um, I would have shut down for 10 years. I don't think I would have written another line if Richard Yates had said anything bad about my work. Yeah. Um, but I was... I was at the crossroads all the time because I could drink underage there. And my girlfriend was there. I could also not pay for drinks. And I like hassled her for, God, it had to be a couple months. I'm like, do you realize you're, you're like serving Dick Yates drinks? I mean, Richard Yates is like one of the greatest American writers of all time. And she's like, Jesus, will you shut up about it? And then one night I was reading Young Hearts Crying, which is a book that came out, I think, in 84. Um, and it was relatively new at the time. And the second wife of the writer character, Michael Davenport, and every Yates protagonist is born in 1926 to parents who divorce when they're seven. The father dies when the protagonist is 11. The mother is a failed bohemian drunken artist. You know, it's like very autobiographical work that is, is uh, has a lot of repeated sort of biographical notes throughout the novels. And um, the writer in... Young Hearts Crying's second wife was had the same name as my girlfriend. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, holy shit. And I'm like midway through the book and we're in bed. And she's like, what? And I'm like, wow, the, 
there's a character named Sarah Gardner here. And she's like, you know, creepy Dick Yates looks at me like that. I'm like, hey, creepy Dick Yates is a fucking genius. <laughs> <laughs> you let him be creepy. <laughs> you let him leer at you, you young lady. But So she finally got sick of me, and I was just sitting there, like, looking at him. You know, I just thought, like, writers got hassled like Michael Jordan did. You know, I had no idea. <laughs> right, right. You know, like, they had to clear out a restaurant if they were to eat there. Um and one day she just said, Dick, come here. This guy likes your writing. <laughs> I was afraid to approach him. And uh, he was really nice, uh, you know, gruff, but nice. And, uh, you know, he was like, so where are you from? And like, Bridgeport. And he's like, well, you can overcome that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's so funny. Like, you think these writers are going to be so unapproachable. But the truth is that, and I think this is probably the case even for people, or for most people who are in the arts or who are, you know, notable in some way, like... It never it never sucks to have somebody tell you that you that they like your stuff. I mean, you'd have to be pretty hard hearted to be put off by that. I think. Well, to like a writer uh, is not liking, say, like a soap opera actor where you come and hassle her on the street. You know, like it's a different. You know, uh, I mean, people have to know your work. You know, like writer celebrity and human celebrity or different things. It's not like you're walking down the street being recognized by and large, you know, even Salman Rushdie. I mean, he had like, you know, a host of people wanting to kill him who wouldn't have recognized him. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, if you think you can probably count on one hand, how many authors are like, you know, have like high face recognition out in the streets of America. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I would think, yeah. you know, so, uh, what about the like music and then writing? Like both kind of, uh, you know, you, you came to both of them in college in your college years, or was one predominant? Like, were you music first and then you started to get into writing later, or vice versa? Like, how did that balance uh, work? Music first. I started playing guitar probably my freshman year of high school, and uh, yeah, I was in bands throughout high school, like you know, bar bands, garage bands kind of thing. And, uh, I mean, that's what I thought I was going to do. I mean, I was going to art school as a, as a fallback to my, you know, rock and roll start. <laughs> I had planned. Art school, <laughs> art school is a fallback. I love it. But yeah. My, my father was very, he's like, Oh, good. Writing is a backup. Yeah. Call <laughs> your head out of your ass. Will you? Poetry. Poetry is a backup. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> if the rock and roll stardom doesn't happen, I'm just going to be a poet. <laughs> Oh, that was, a, and, and finally, that took a fiction class. That was how I got to fiction. So I, I have her to thank, and she has me to still avoid, I'm sure. <laughs> so, okay, so then, like, how did, talk about your music career, you know, like, as you got older, like, and, and uh, eventually got to where you're playing with the urinals. Um, well, it wasn't, uh, that's where, you know, it stopped being a career probably, I mean, it was never a career where I made a living at it, but it, it stopped being like bands I was playing in and things. Probably in like my early 20s uh, was when, you know, I was at some of my worst addiction-wise and, you know, getting kicked out of bands. Like bands that were known for drinking and doing too many drugs were firing me, which is like, <laughs> you know, should have been a warning sign, but, you know... Um, you know, and I, I just, you know, you look for excuses, uh, the rhetorical you, I look for excuses, you know, not wanting to quit, you know, so it's just like, well, I'm not a collaborative artist, I'm a writer, <laughs> you know, so fuck these bands. So I've been in bands for a number of years, and then it just, you know, um, 
really I got too too messed up to function in a collaborative form. Um, I was letting too many people down, so I could you know, I could kind of hide as a writer. And then there was a year where I realized at the end of the year I, I wrote a three page short short. <laughs> I was like, wow, uh, this writing isn't going that well either. Um, three pages a year. It's going to take a while to get it published. But those were a great three mm-hmm. pages. I mean, that's what, spectacular. <laughs> they, they were lapidary in their precision. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, okay, so you're mid-20s when this is happening? Is this, like, is this when everything came to a head with, in terms of substance abuse? Um, close to, you know. I mean, there were a lot of, yeah, there were a lot of different, you know, heads that it came to, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's not a very, uh, in some ways, not a very interesting story. It's, it's everyone's story who has to, you know, come to terms and quit or die, you know? So, um, you know, I was, I was getting very sick. Uh, I was like 26 years old and, you know, coughing up blood and things. And, um, Oof. what was uh, it? Was it just booze or was it every, was it other things as well? Um, Mostly, well, what I liked was, was alcohol and opiates, but it was anything I could get my hands on if I couldn't get what I wanted. Um, but you could, you know, you'd always get alcohol, which is the nice thing about alcohol. Um, and, you know, I picked my jobs so that I could always have drugs and alcohol. You know, I worked at bars, you know, things like that. Right, right. Um, so, you know, just having a lot of health difficulties, some some legal difficulties, a lot of <laughs> relationship difficulties. Um, and it, it got to be, it got to a point where I just couldn't, uh, um, I, I, I couldn't make an argument for it. Um, no matter how hard I tried after a while. And, you know, it's, um, it works for some people. And, and you know, with, I think most addicts, it worked early for me. It made me feel better. And then it didn't, you know, and then I kept giving it, you know, another decade of chances after it stopped working. Right. Yeah. I mean, I always feel like, I always feel like the, the best time that you ever do a drug is the first time. And then it's just a series, it just from there, it's just diminishing returns. You know, maybe that's not the case for everybody, but that's sort of the way it seems, you know. I think there's some truth to that. Um, I guess, the, but there could be know, some, there could be some good times in the middle too. <laughs> it just depends. Oh, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, the first couple of years, definitely for me, of, of like daily use, were, you know, I won't say good for me, but they may have extended my life in a way, you know, because they did work and they got me to the next stage where they didn't, and I had to, you know, make some choices, but. um but yeah, you know, I mean, it, 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 there just wasn't anything charming or romantic about it. Uh, by the time I was 27, you know, it was just like I had planned on being dead by the time I was 30. And then it was like, wow, I'm like three years early and I'm falling apart. And <laughs> right. do I really want to die? And, you know, and that's when it stopped being like, you know, oh, you know, cute and romantic. And it was just pathetic, you know, like, so. So did you, so um, did, but it sounds like you had... Like at least uh, like one foot in reality, and we're able to kind of assess yourself. Like sometimes I think when people get to end stages of like heavy abuse that requires like other people intervening, like were you basically did you basically call yourself out, or were there people in your life who were like you got to get help, or both? Well, 
Yeah, I mean, it's probably uh, um, a little of both. Like, there were a number of people prior to me doing it. I mean, there was no formal intervention, but there were a number of people who loved me for a number of years who were like, you know, you can't do this. And I'd be like, oh, come on. You don't know anything. I'm tortured. I'm an artist. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know my pain. (laughs) I feel pain on a level you can't even imagine. You know, it's like just a bunch of horseshit, to, you know. But eventually, I mean, I think my last job, I was working at a microbrewery uh, where um, it was this great brewery, uh, New England Brewing Company, who did this wonderful uh, couple of, um, they had a great pale ale, they had an oatmeal stout, and, um, and I quit drugs the year before, so I was very proud of myself. My drinking probably quadrupled the last year. <laughs> um, and uh, and I did, actually, I got fired by my last band that year. And they're like, you're just always wasted. I'm like, I quit drugs for you assholes. You have no, <laughs> no, no gratitude at all. Um, but uh, we got paid, but we also got paid. Like, I, I worked the bottling line, and every 12th, was what they called a short, which was 11 ounces instead of 12. And I got to take like three cases, I think home of, of 11 ounces of beer every, every Thursday night. Um, and in the Connecticut, there were blue laws where you can't get alcohol on Sunday unless you go to a bar. And, uh, I was living alone at the time. And so that was Thursday night. I got three cases of beer and, um, I woke up Sunday and the place looked like, Keith Moon had like destroyed it and like I'd had a huge party and it's just been me for a couple of blackout days and there was like a beer left. I'm like, fuck, you know, I getting three cases on Thursday. I thought I'd never have to deal with Sunday. And, uh, I thought I gotta go, I gotta fuck. I gotta drink at a bar today. I don't want to drink at a bar. And then it was that day. I was just like, this is ridiculous. Look at your life. (laughs) And so that was, you know, so it, yeah, it wasn't, well, you know, it wasn't very dramatic. I, I had the beer to like stave off my hangover. I watched the Giants game. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, you know, just, then I quit and I really should have sought help. I mean, I quit, I had seizures and, you know, luckily I worked for a boss who had a number of guys going to rehab. So, he let me come to work and pretty much just puke in the corner and shake all day and give me somewhere to be. Um, but, uh, yeah. So you, uh, you quit was, cold turkey? Yeah, it wasn't very bright. I shouldn't have. Wow, that's impressive, though. You know, usually people need help. You know, they got to go into some sort of treatment or something. Um, yeah, well, I was just really unknowledgeable. Um, I, I I had 15 years clean and relapsed, and I I needed help when I got clean the second time because I knew better. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I got really lucky the first time. I got lucky in a lot of ways. So okay, so but you were you were clean for 15 years and then fell off the wagon and had like another drink or something, and then then it was like, <sighs> no, I didn't drink. Uh, I did uh, uh, opiates. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was. Um, you know, that was, uh, and it's, it's, uh, you know, there are a lot of cliches in, in, uh, recovery, but one is that, uh, 
any decent clean time ruins your relapses, which is true, because you just know what you're doing. It's very difficult to lie to yourself that it's a good idea. <laughs> right. Or, or or to, like, lie to yourself about, like, what what's happening. You know, I don't know. There's something about, like, the naivete of youth, I would imagine, that makes it easier. But then you, you have a little bit of experience under your belt and then sober experience, and it's hard to ignore it, right? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and a lot of things that shouldn't get in your way, like, you know, uh, like I probably would have gotten clean the first two or three weeks if I wasn't so ashamed, but like I couldn't tell anyone, you know? Um, so, you know, it was just cause people, you know, when, when, when you're a straight addict, like, and people think you're, you're still clean saying hi to them is a lie if you're loaded, you know? So it was just, you know, just a tsunami of shame. <laughs> so it was a tough year. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So um, talk about uh, being like being in um, bands because I know like you know the cost of living. The new novel um, is getting a lot of praise for being um, a well. You know, I hate to use this phrase almost because it sounds so silly almost. But as far as rock and roll novels go, like a lot of people. Uh, especially people with uh, you know backgrounds in music are reading it and saying that it gets the life right, you know. So clearly, you're working from experience here. Like, can you tell some uh, some good stories from being in the bands and being on the road and playing dingy little bars and stuff? Like, you must have a lot of good stories to tell from those kinds of experiences. Um, you know, it's it's almost like the sort of laws of narrative themselves. Like uh, most of the the good stories are bad stories, so. Um, Tell us some bad stories. You know, <laughs> well, those are from mostly the early days. Like right now, you know, uh, I joined the Urals in 2006, and John and Kevin, John Talley Jones and Kevin Barrett are uh, two of the funniest, most easygoing people I've ever known. Like, you know, and I mean, I was never a punk guitar player. I was more of a garage rock sort of Neil Young ripoff guitar player. But, uh, you know, they, their guitar player quit, and they were friends, and they asked me to join, and I'm like, I'm not a punk player. They're like, no, we're not really a punk band. So, but, you know, so we have good stories and we have a good time, but there aren't like really memorable, hideous things. But, um, but like the scene in the, uh, uh, the novel with the, the lactating woman coming to the bar when the band is stuck in Winston-Salem, uh, that one's sort of directly out of place, <laughs> which I, I don't normally work from, you know, sort of, well, that's not true. I work from both, you know, sort of kernels of, of things that happen in an invention, but that one plays out almost exactly the way it played out so, that day. So where, give listeners, give listeners a better idea. A lactating woman comes to the bar. <laughs> that doesn't say everything. <laughs> um, no, there was this bartender, Tim, who I probably should have changed his name, but I, I doubt he's alive. Um, and uh, this is actually... Uh, I was in a band that was local at that time. So this is a place I worked. Um, so that's what's changed in that scene. But uh, his common-law wife comes over, and um, she just steps up to the bar. And it's naturally it's in Florida. I, I uh, wasn't in Winston-Salem, which is where it is in the book. Um, but his, his girlfriend slash wife, Tammy, comes to the bar, and she's wearing a halter top. And um, she just opens her halter top and starts lactating milk onto the, the bar top, top 
and screaming, look at what this bastard is into. I don't even have custody of my kids anymore. This is what he's into, screaming at Tim, Tim the bartender. <laughs> and he just, and you know, I, 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 I would think I would have been horrified. So I guess he gets points for sort of embracing his fetish. Um, but he just says, go home. You're just embarrassing yourself. <laughs> and, and actually something that I tried to make fit in the, in the book, but it just, just didn't. There was a woman who waited tables there um, whose ex-husband was the weatherman on the Sarasota news channel. And so afterwards, we're like staying up till four in the morning, like doing blow and drinking after we closed. And she says, can you believe Tim's into that lactation shit? And another waitress says, you fucked a bartender. <laughs> uh, excuse me, you, you fucked a weatherman. You have no right to say anything. Nice, <laughs> I stepped on the line. Hey, you know um, <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Lactating fetish is not quite as low as fucking a weatherman <laughs> on the food chain of sexuality. What is up with a? So he just liked to see breast milk. He wanted. To, oh god. I, I I think he liked to see, and I would I would imagine taste it. I don't know. I didn't. Uh, you know, I should have uh, I should have asked more. But I was I was always a bad journalist. That's why I got bounced out of journalism. It's, I didn't ask those questions. I just made things up. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes some things maybe it's better not to know, you know. <laughs> so uh, when it comes to like band life, when you're playing in, um, you know, you're, you're. I mean, were you ever? How much touring did you do? Um, not as much as is in, in the book. Um, you know, it, I'm old. In in the mid '80s, it was a. Uh, um, a really difficult thing to get very far out of your region. So like one and two week swings, you know, um, even with, with as much regularity as you could manage, you couldn't really, you know, you book tours by like pay phones, you would get to town and you'd like find, you know, like a college kid and say, where the hell is this club? Right. <laughs> you know, cause it's not like we were responsible people who went to AAA and got our like trip tick or anything like that. You <laughs> know, trip tick. That's so, so old school. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, uh, um, I, I have to write a, an essay with this. It's, uh, I have this, uh, this phrase a residual metaphor, like things people still use in language that no longer exist in sort of concrete fact, like, uh, you know, I have to use my Rolodex or something like that. Right, right. Or when when you're like watching TiVo and you say, oh, I taped, um, you know, the Larry David show. Right. You didn't in fact tape it. Right. Um, so yeah, a triptych is sort of a, a residual metaphor. Well, God, and it's just, um, it's, I mean, because I've always said, uh, or I've thought about this, when you, when you, you know, go to like, spend your college years going to these rock shows and seeing these bands and, uh, you know, there there are a lot of bands out there that achieve a certain level of success and can tour the country and can play, you know, five hundred person theaters or whatever it is, uh, but they never right. they never really ascend beyond that. And I forget even who it was, but I saw like a marquee when I was back in uh, Boulder, you know, a couple of years ago, my old college town, and I saw a marquee, and it was like a band that I had seen ten years earlier, and it was like Jesus, these guys are still doing this, and it's. It's a hard life, like packing up the van or getting on the bus and, you know. Yeah, it is. I, I love it, you know, and I always did. Actually, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, a freak that way. You know, I, I, although I have friends who do it, you know, for a living who just clearly love it too, you know, like, 
Um, well, you get used to it. I mean, especially if it's something you've been doing for years. I mean, like, there's no other way. You just wake up on the bus, get out, you're in some new town. And I mean, there's a certain romance to that. Well, there's, there's also just a, a real cool rhythm to it. I mean, you know, I, even today, I, I love going out on tour. Like, people tell you when to be places, where to be. You go to the club, you sound check, they give you your dinner buyout or they feed you. They tell you when you have to be back. You know, it's like, it's very, uh, Structured. you know, yeah, yeah, which I, I think is healthy for me, even though I, I have absolutely very little structure in my daily life. So maybe that's why it's attractive to me. I also like, you know, waking up somewhere I wasn't yesterday. There's, you know, um, there's either a camaraderie or at least uh, something interesting happening if there's tension, you know. Um, well, yeah, although I'm too old. Too old for paying attention now. I was going to say, Tuck, is that you know there, there's a there's a tension that you know, a possibility for tension that can arise in any creative collaboration, but it's obviously kind of um, it's well documented. You know, bands uh, squabbling, you know, band members squabbling with one another and the egos and everything else. But talk a little bit about that. Like, how does how does that unfold? You know, what what usually is the call? I guess it could be a, any number of things. But if you're out on the road and you're tired and or if you're trying, if you're rehearsing and you're trying to write a new song, like, do you ever have experiences where you know you came to blows or people got super crazy? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and I'm not a come to blows kind of guy. Actually, I've been, uh, I mean, I can count on one hand like the number of like fist fights I've ever been in, and yeah, over half of those were in, in bands. Um, yeah, I was I was in a band once where just all night the the front man who played guitar, but he and the drummer just had something that day that they were just just going at each other in the van all day, and then uh, like during the set, uh, Jay the the uh, lead singer was just saying shit about the drummer, <laughs> and the drummer doesn't have a mic, he doesn't sing at all, doesn't sing back up, and he's uh, you know he's just. Anyone out there can keep time. You might want to come up and play drums with us because we don't have a fucking drummer. And like, <laughs> so he throws a stick at his head and it bounces off of his head. And the next thing I know, like Jeff just jumped into the kit and he's like just, just like belly flopped onto the guy's snare and is trying to strangle him. <laughs> <laughs> and, the rest, and the rest of us are just standing there like, wow. Um, was this during a show or during rehearsal? Yeah, yeah, no, that was during a show. That was like right in the middle of the show. We were, and we were opening for. Uh, it was a good spot. We were we were opening for a, a you know a better known band. It was a chance to get a get more of a crowd. What was the band? And, what was uh, the band that you were opening for? I believe that night it was Scruffy the Cat, who was a, an old cowpunk band from Boston, um, who had a, a bigger local following than us, okay. and 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 retained it. <laughs> right. They, <laughs> but um, so, you know, there's this. I'm sorry. Uh, well, how did the crowd respond? I mean, like, there's a full fist fight going on in the middle of the show. That's sort of cool, you know, like from <laughs> from an audience yeah, perspective. I, uh, I think you know, especially with an opening band who you're not there to see, it's almost like better than if they played a whole <laughs> set of music that you don't know. I mean, unless they're amazing, you know. Uh, and on some nights we were really good, but that was not going to be an amazing night anyway. So, I think they got their money's worth more than perhaps some other crowds did. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a strange life. I mean, you really do just sort of devolve, you know, to you're, you're like, 
you know, even after a week, you're like four rhesus monkeys, you know, in a cage, you know, and then the egos, like whose song goes first on it. You know, when it was vinyl, it was like, who gets the first slot, first side, last slot, first side, opening and closing a second side. Like, who wrote which song? And if, if you fought for, you know, like, if, you know, you couldn't, you can't have a democratic discussion and say, like, oh, the single should be the song I wrote. Like, there's no way you can say that and seem objective, you know. And, and it's, it's funny because usually it ends up like, you know, three or four people, they're three writers, like, you know, and each of them picks the song they wrote as the single. It's like, well, either they have enormous confidence in what they're doing and that's admirable, or this is just, you know, this is devolved into, you know, a, a childish ego thing, which is, you know, probably a little both. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's... <laughs> I mean, bands are made to break up and they, they get together usually, you know, it's with your friends and all of a sudden your business partners with your friends, which you never planned on being. Um, and then if you have any sort of even a small record deal, there's, you know, um, you know, the songwriter makes more than the performers do, you know, unless you share credits like REM and people like that. And there's no mistake that they lasted longer than other people, you know, deciding early to share your publishing is a better way to stay together. Because yeah. people get, you know, they get really resentful, like, oh, you make twice as much money as I do. It's like, yeah, you try writing songs. <laughs> right. You know? right. And, you know, there's, you know, there's both sides to that argument. Like, you know, one person is, you know, living in the same ratty conditions as the other, and, you know, um, and, you know, it happens a lot. Like, people think bands are bands when they're, you know, just the front person is on the contract with the the label and the rest of the people are, are weekly employees when they're on the road. You know, things like that. Yeah, Jesus. So which, which guy were you in the band? Like, when, you, when you're out on the road, you're in some van. Like, are you, the, are you, the, are you driving the van? Are you sitting shotgun? Oh, no, God. God, no. <laughs> no. No one lets me, which I love. <laughs> So you're like, what, are you in the back just like smoking cigarettes and like just cracking jokes or, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like there are different roles. There's always like a guy, um, a guy who's got to drive. I think I would be the driver. That would probably be me. But <laughs> um, Well, no one gets to smoke in the van now. But yeah, um, somehow I, I usually end up and uh, unless there's a rotation and people are in a, are insistent about it, I usually end up somehow... Uh, um, Behind the driver, yeah, cracking jokes or reading a book. That's pretty much what I do. <laughs> and, then, uh, and it's back in back in the day, you know, drinking and smoking and reading a book and cracking jokes. <laughs> and then what about uh you know, when you talk about bands and you mentioned you alluded to it earlier that like some some nights you were really good. And so I'm interested in like the parallel between writing well and having like a really good day at the keyboard or at the you know, whatever if you write longhand, you know, where you just have a great day where you're you're on. And, you know, you can go to a show and see a band play and you can catch them on a really good night and you can say, Jesus, that was an amazing, you know, they played an amazing show, like a better than usual. And so right. um, I guess, you know, I guess it's probably mysterious in both quarters, but like, did you ever get a sense as a writer or as a musician, um, like what it is like a, that has to happen in order for that to unfold? Or is it just a big fat mystery? Like, you know, like when you're playing with a band just to kind of, uh, you know, narrow it down. Like when you go out one night and you guys absolutely, you're, you know, totally in sync, everyone's playing 
their best and you walk off the stage like do you know why did you was it like well we were just getting along or we we were really focused or what what is it that makes a band on actually i, I think it, it 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 applies to both writing and music but you can't plan it which is really tough um is is egos get totally out like no one and if you're writing, you know, like you're not trying to dictate how it goes. You're sort of submitting to the process. Like, like when you click musically, it's because everyone has sort of submitted to the music in a way. Like no one has an agenda and it just flows. It's like opening up a tap, you know, and it just flows and nothing gets in its way. And usually what gets in my way when I write or if I'm playing music is if I'm thinking, you know, like if, uh, I mean, I'm enormously analytical after the fact, you know, on revision and stuff. But if I'm if I'm thinking while I'm doing something, you know, it, it totally it robs the zen of it, and nothing's going to happen. You know, and, and thinking can be any number of things, like you know, feeling like you don't know the song on a basic level to you know, just thinking like, oh, I hate playing this song. I hate the lyrics to this song. I wish he would have rewritten this fucking song. You know, it's like, <laughs> you, there are things like, you know, in, in, in a band, it's just exponential, you know. Um, and I, and also, like, you know, I'm, I'm a control freak, and I'm much better about it, you know, at 46 than I was at 20, you know, but uh, learning to... to you know, share and be respectful of other people's, you know, points of view, um, which you sort of don't have to do in writing until, you know, you get to stages of showing it to your peers and your editor and your agent and things like that, you know, and, and then, you know, at that point you have to not be like, no, fuck you. I wrote it. I know it's good, you know, or whatever. Right. Um, you know, you have to listen at, at some stage and, and, you know, but you also at, at some stage have to, listen with respect and if you disagree, you know, and have a good aesthetic argument for disagreeing, you know, ultimately you choose the way it's going to be, which is not true in a band. A band is, you know, by its nature, it's, it has compromise in it or it's not a band. It's just a backing band. You know, it's just like the beach boys and Brian Wilson tells them what to do. Right, you know? right, right, right. I mean, most of the time, if it's a, if it's a true band and everyone's contributing, then, I imagine that, like, even if you're the, the the songwriter, the song that actually gets played or recorded is far from how it sounded in your head when you were conceiving it. You know, like everyone kind of has to put their little mark on it. Yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, and then you know you look at bands and you know what they get into arguments about, like uh, like in the band, like Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm, to, to this day are arguing over songwriting credits. That Robertson says he wrote the songs, and Levon Helm says, "Yeah, you know, he, he would bring an idea, and the band would flesh it out, and it wouldn't have sounded that way without us." And Robbie Robertson said, "Yeah, that's your job. You're a band, <laughs> but I wrote it." Right. You know, so it's a de- it's a debate over what writing it means at that stage. Oh, yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, and you know, it's also funny to think like you because you know, writers. It, it's easy to like associate neuroticism with writers and like mental chatter and. Um, you know, analysis, like uh, hyper analysis and all that kind of stuff. But it's funny to think that because you're at a rock show and it's this big spectacle and it's loud and, you know, it's, it's, um, spectacular, you know, but you you look up at the stage and you see some guy like shredding on guitar and it's entirely possible that he's sitting there going, why the fuck am I playing this song in his head? You know, like, 
Oh, yeah. Entertaining some, like, you know, uh, I don't know, some mental uh, chatter about, you know, lyrics or uh, dispute with a drummer or whatever it is. It's funny to think about. Or just, you know, I can't believe I wore these pants. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, no, I'm serious. You know, it's like, fuck, why didn't I pack, like, one? I had to wear these. This is a night. I, I should have worn the dirty ones. They don't know they stink, you know. <laughs> You know, I have khakis. I have fucking khakis. You know, so <laughs> things like that. You know. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, man. It's been fun talking and hearing about all this stuff. And uh, congratulations once again on the new book. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. And uh, oh, thank you very much. All right, you guys. There you have it. That is Rob Roberge. Go get his novel. It's called The Cost of Living, and it is available now from Other Voices Books. You can find Rob online at robroberge.com. He's on the Twitter, where his handle is at RobergeRob, and you can find him on the Facebook, too. Don't forget to go join the TNB Book Club over at TheNervousBreakdown.com. $9.99 a month for a book a month. Come on, you guys. It's the deal of the century. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to get the app, the free official other people app, the official app of this podcast. It's available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch or Android device. It is the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can organize your favorite episodes. And you can access premium content and the full archives as well, all via the app. So if you haven't gotten that yet, please go do that. Uh, okay, closing thoughts. Talking about having nothing to say. Contradicting myself. You know, it's confusing. Days like today tend to shine a light on human complexity. But, uh, you know... Then I think about the first responders and I think about uh, the overwhelming outpouring of goodness that happened, of good sentiment, of good feeling, of good action. I think about people running toward uh, the explosion. That actually happened, you know? People did that. They wanted to help. And I think there's something, uh, you know, amid all of the confusion, there's something simple about that. Something pure and good and simple and strong. Right? Please remember that Agatha Christie had no, form, uh, no formal schooling and that Edmund Wilson once referred to Robert Frost as, quote, a dreadful old fraud, end quote. That is all for now. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it greatly. Thank you for spreading the word and so on and so forth. I'll be back on Sunday with another conversation with another writer. In the meantime, uh, don't spend too much time on the Internet. Don't let the darkness get you down. Don't let the bastards who did this get you down. You know, the darkness is small and the light is large. <laughs> in times of trouble Mother Mary comes to me 
speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing.